Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten, and every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. To celebrate one year of the podcast, we have a special treat. I discuss the house recently named at the Don't Move Improve Awards as London's best new home improvement project. My guest is the architect Ben Allen, founder of Studio Ben Allen, and we discuss House Recast. The project is a reinterpretation and extension of a typical home from the Victorian era that creates a beautiful sequence of playful spaces filled with colour, texture, pattern, curved shapes and filtered natural light. The judges described it as a project that pushes the boundaries of how homes can look and feel. What is really interesting about this project is the wider themes it explores. Ben has used it as a testbed for ideas about off-site production, not something that is usually explored on small, compact and challenging sites such as this one. If you'd like to find out more about Studio Ben Allen and their project House Recast, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com, including images, plans and links to further information. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Ben. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, George. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I think we have to start with a congratulations um, on your award this year for the, uh, the, the, London, the London Don't Move Improve Awards um, and, and winning the main prize. Um, is that something that you expected with this project? Did you kind of know that when you, you started out? Um, I, I, was, I was very, very surprised um, just because the um, uh, well, we were just having a little preamble to the podcast and it's obviously really um really competitive these days don't move improve i mean it's sort mm. of become a whole field of architecture in itself london house extensions and the you know i've always thought of london as a sort of one of the global epicenters of architecture and it, partly that's because loads of young practices emerge here and the reason that they emerge is because there's this sector which is fiddling around with people's homes um usually mm. on the back of them and uh so it's yeah. I was I was kind of gobsmacked. It's really um, the say so the field was really strong. You guys were part of it. It was you know it's really like lots of it's very esteemed company. So just to be shortlisted, I was pretty chuffed about. It. But we, I mean, you know, we, we we thought it was a nice project, and mm-hmm. it has been it's been one of those projects that sort of you know this. It's it's not like uh, we try not to have hierarchy within projects in the studio. Um, we try and sort of you know I think. I, you know, in some ways, it makes sense when you run a practice that you know some practice, some projects just because the clients don't want them to be so heavily developed. You know, they they maybe find that they're not some necessary projects that would be published or something that would be be newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, um, I think we sort of had a we you know we, we I've been excited to get it out into the world, and pandemic sort of created a slight delay in getting getting it. Um, completed and photographed and the landscaping done um so it was you know i've been pretty excited about sort of mm-hmm. um get, getting getting it sort of let's say um being able to to get some pictures out there but um mm-hmm. yeah and the response has been kind of amazing which is really nice 
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's an incredible achievement. It's the, the London architecture scene and the residential home improvement is there's just so many rich projects out there. But I'm, um, yeah, I just feel very excited and chuffed that I've, I've got you on here and that we can actually talk in depth about this project because there's, there's good reason why it's one and, um, and there's, there's so much depth to it. There's so many things that we can cover. Um, but if we start with, um, with you, you founded the studio in 2014. Um, and am I right in thinking you, you already kind of founded it on, on, some strong principles of of the things that have come to fruition in in house recast but really wanting to focus on materials and production techniques particularly with projects is that something that's quite important to you um yeah i think um i think accessibility of of good design is important i mean one of the sort of catalysts uh, you know i think uh, i was working in berlin i was working for Olaf Eliasson and having this amazing opportunity and i think i think to be honest the, the sort of sort of tipping point is probably after the kind of global crisis working in the art world doing quite a sort of i, I mean the projects we did were not like i, I was doing things like the you know, seven time pavilion it wasn't like money's thrown at you but it's they're reasonably good budgets but generally and you know hanging out with all these kind of artists in berlin that th- there's a certain sort of target market which is probably the same in architecture which is people with a lot of money and and I, I was always sort of interested in sort of seeing if it's possible to do really wonderful things or you're trying to you know do something which is you know um really captures people's imaginations which um really kind of have a sort of strong effect on people um without necessarily having massive budgets so i think and we've been using a lot of in in the studio in berlin we've been using a lot of like prototyping um you know there's a lot of computational design so it was interesting as we see how easy it would be to you know that one of the sort of background projects was to um to to kind of try to you know say deliver more uh using this technology and i always felt it was a little bit disappointing i mean huge fan of um you know roger stirk harbour and richard rogers work but they've done these sort of prefab homes and I think they're probably on a very tight budget, but there's they're sort of cubes basically that get stacked up. And obviously, there's there's loads of issues with making things in standardised ways, and there's lots of polemics and challenges that sort of undermine. And there's and and you can see that because people have been trying to do it for a long time, but do, things do kind of tend to end up being boxes. And it's always interesting to sort of show how things don't have to be boxes, and and maybe in this case, it's more bespoke. Um, elements but how you can try and make it more affordable um that's not to say things are necessarily cheap but like i say more affordable mm-hmm. and you, so you you mentioned in there about i'm going to pronounce this wrong you can correct me but working with olaf uh aliasen is it yeah is that the correct pronunciation? I, well there's i mean uh, icelandic german english i mean the yep. slight different aliasen is the kind of yeah, the one that i use yeah and so as a reference point for people that don't know, but very well-known artists, very well-known for doing the project in the Turbine Hall at the Tate Modern, the, the weather project. That um, Now, you worked with him for, for 10 years. That's quite an unconventional um, role, I'd say, in terms of somebody that's now running an architecture practice. Um, what kind of influence did that period have on, on you working with him? Uh, I mean, it was huge, really. It was... Um, I... I'd sort of uh, I'd worked for Fletcher Priest 
and I worked with Jonathan Tucky, and that was a fantastic experience. Well, both of them were great experiences. With John, I was really, um, it, we we did we had a lot of fun doing some really interesting projects. Um, I think he'd worked for David Chipperfield before, and I sort of felt that maybe something was missing in 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 the sort of variety of people I'd worked for. Um, and I just sort of wanted to broaden my experience. Also, I mean, my family are all architects. So I was kind of, in a way, it was nice to get away from architecture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, I mean, not, it was not true. I wasn't pushed into do, being an architect. I was, it, it was actually the opposite, but I've sort of been surrounded by architecture journals from as long as I can remember <laughs> on the sort of breakfast table. There's just, you know, so I was in a way much more aware of, um, you know, that then a lot of people when I started studying architecture, I, I kind of had a really fairly good knowledge of not just, you know, Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, or sort of, you know, Rogers, Foster. And and I, it was just actually just like a point at which is quite nice to get away from that and go into a totally different field. And so, um, yeah, that was, and, and, and it was, you know, it was really exciting times. The studio was developing. When I started, it was about 10, 12 people. And when I left, I mean, there's always lots of freelancers coming and going, but when I left, it was going on for a hundred people. So it was quite a huge change. Um, it was after he, uh, Oliver had done the turbine project. So it was a sort of like quite after the storm, I think there was his reputation has suddenly sort of, in, you know, gone increased a lot, but it was a quite interesting time where I think, um, the studio, you know, he and the studio were trying to work out what, how to take this forward and, He's always had an interest in, you know, uh, architecture, and he's got the, his his architectural references alone were quite interesting. Bruno Taut, some sort of German expressionists. So it was it was nice not just leaving London. Well, you know, I didn't study in London, but having worked for sort of more or less five years, leaving London and going somewhere different, totally different architecture scene, as well as obviously being involved in art world in Berlin at that time, was just sort of I'd say fairly interesting that once in a while and architecture doesn't really do this, but once in a while the art world seems to sort of choose a location, whether it's Paris in the twenties or New York in the seventies. And it was sort of Berlin and in, in, in the sort of noughties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it kind of still is in a way um, where artists from all around the world decide to kind of move somewhere for various reasons. And so it was just a really, it, you know, not, not just being in all of a studio, but also all the people around, um, Initially, this, he shared a studio with Thomas Demand and Tasta Dean, who are also two really, you know, influential and interesting and very different artists. Just seeing on the post boxes on the front door these three names lined up, it was kind <laughs> of it's kind of amazing. You know, that just every day <laughs> turning up to the studio that felt like quite you know an amazing um, sort of situation to be in. So it was that it was incredible, really, and and. You know, also obviously there's the people at the studio as well, and I I sort of set up a kind of with uh, Ricardo Gomez who, who's working there as well. We set up a sort of small art architecture collaborative which we ran for several years, and so and that was sort of working with some of the artists who were working in the studio and doing competitions and um, and and uh, um, yeah. So it was it was really uh, interesting and it kind of it was a nice diversion from say mainstream architecture. Um, Having said that, the challenges of the art world are pretty extreme and sometimes similar or sometimes even more complex. So, you know, we, you know, all for, you know, it was really, it was really fun to work with somebody who was almost came from such a different, you know, he'd sort of sit down at your table and he'd say, oh, let's, I've had an idea, we're going to do something really, really complicated. 
and you don't get many architects doing that it's always like oh let's simplify let's simplify let's simplify yeah and you'd be like okay right and then um or, or sometimes it, you know the sort of brief would be like i want the space to be sort of you know you know remember there was this thing that um i was working on with ricardo and it was like it was an underground sphere and he, and all of his main direction was you know about how it should feel as you walk down this ramp in the sphere and how you know it should be kind of angular and it was very sort of abstract as a kind of brief um so you know sometimes it was it, that was also very interesting and um and I, I even just the fact that i started in the studio doing kind of research work not even on a proper project for the first sort of um three or four months um and my my brief was patterns and shadows and sunlight that was mm. it <laughs> and so it was like which was kind of like actually really stressful as a you know it's just like where's the proper brief where's the building next door which is falling down you know and in a way it makes you realize yeah you know there's there's a lot of things in a way that make architecture quite easy and and even yeah and then when things started getting more real we started you know having to deliver projects and it's like actually you've got these really complicated things and you've got to ship them around the world and assemble them and you've got a team of people luckily we work with very good people but the complexity of delivering things on time and on budget and in the art world you can't be late you know if you miss the dead the the the, the the deadline then there is no show or you know there's usually an opening event or something and that's for all the journalists mm -hmm. there so it's kind of it's actually a really pressured environment which kind of also makes it interesting it's like mm. um yeah so it has its constraints because it's it's often an interesting talk isn't it with architecture and you know whether it is it an art or is it hemmed down by too many you know a lot of architects will complain about the fact that you know you're working on a house there's so many practical things to to solve and sometimes there'll be a sort of whinge of like well artists don't have to deal with this they can just build exactly what they want if they're creating a sculpture whereas we've got to think about drain pipes and electricity and uh you know what all kinds of things did, did working with Ulufa did that free you up in some way did that kind of liberate you a little bit from from that kind of thinking um a little bit i mean there's less there's definitely less kind of groundwork but i mean having said that the seven time pavilion you know that had to be built in the park mm. you know we had to do foundations um you know there's, there's still they're just different constraints and are, are in, in a number of cases we're working with architects although again then you get to the point where the architects you're working with would come up with solutions and you and you have to say well they're not good enough and then being an architect you could just sort of step in and go we should do it like this um even you know, I remember we were doing the rainbow panorama in Aarhus, and I was like, "The light—it's such a complicated thing." We were just trying to work out how we, how the liabilities would work out, and mm -hmm. trying to explain to a Danish architect what a design and build contract is, and saying, <laughs> "You know, you probably have something like this." And I don't know, get the feeling in Denmark, some well, this person, particular person, didn't necessarily seem to know what a design and build contract was, or if there was anything like that in Denmark, and even like what the options were. And I was like, well, "There must be alternatives contractually." um <laughs> just sort of in a way using my part three to try and try and work out like well how does it work in your country and um and it, uh actually in that case i realized that in the uk we're quite contractually quite well educated <laughs> that mm -hmm. a lot of the time people don't really know that much because it's just one standard way of doing it but um yeah it's it was it, it, it you know the constraints they're just different constraints, but I, it does sometimes frustrate me how, and I think it happens in all fields that people, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. People look at the mm -hmm. art world. And when I was teaching at Oxford Brooks, it was definitely like, you know, a sense that it would be as an architecture, oh, it's already complicated and much better to be an artist. And even the fact that you just, you don't have to justify what you do. It's like, well, actually you, you do, you know, if you're, 
and and you know again if you're an artist and you just work in your attic and you you know and you just make work for yourself then i guess that that's maybe comes with some freedom but mm-hmm. i think you know most of the people i was around the pressures are extreme i mean you know you've got a show in a year's time on the other side of the world and you've got 20 rooms to fill and the world's press are going to turn up to look at it that's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you've got to make a show which might have some old works in it might have some new works usually there'll be expectation of some new works and 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 also just conceptually you know i think one of the things i think was most interesting is just sort of how to build a concept it's like i think as architects we've slightly lost some of that it's like i think we have an idea of concepts like it's all glass that's it you know it's, there's very much the sort of you know and i think people like big sometimes or, or beyond ingles uh like they sort of um have slightly that's sort a of redactive approach it's like oh it's a tower and we snapped it in half that's a concept and I find that a bit frustrating. And what's great about what was great in one of my roles, which they were changed over time of the time I was being in the studio because it was sort of growing and changing was there was nobody to write some of the statements. So I was writing these kind of artist statements and it was a really, and being dyslexic, it's not something which <laughs> it's sort of, I'd ever thought I'd be asked to write things that would go out in publications and usually someone would check it, but it was really, um, it, it was actually really interesting and it was mainly because there was the only native speaker in the studio or one of a couple and being an architect, they were like, you should be able to do this. Um, so I was sort of there going and, and actually sort of, you know, I'd, I'd sit with all of four and just say, oh, you know, sometimes it was old works. We were doing a book and we had to kind of write descriptions of all the works. And um, he'd sort of give me a few token words and it was like, you know, it was a very brief description, but it was interesting how, it was sort of, you know, you kind of build a concept and it can be quite elaborate and it should be multi-layered and it should kind of have lots of reference points and it doesn't have to be a one-liner. Mm. And it's not to say that architects works are one-liners, but I do think that there's the way we talk about our work either tends to be quite sort of, it quite sort of um, maybe, you know, heavily referencing, you know, philosophers and, you know, something which is almost purposefully um you know opaque and difficult to access mm-hmm. or very very redactive depending on which scene part of the architecture world you're in and and um and i also thought it was funny when i was teaching that people would sort of we do like a sort of introduction project it would be like a little installation and, and everyone would sort of go there was definitely a sort of thing of oh, i'll make it more of an artwork i can just say it is what it is because then i don't have to justify it it's just mm. that's what it is and i always think that's kind of a slightly patronizing view that the architecture world has of the art world that you just do it and nobody asks you any questions about it yeah and and it's like well actually no if anything that the art world's better than the architecture world at just you know finding not necessarily justifying but like finding ways and sometimes there's also groups of ways that there are like areas of investigation if you look mm-hmm. at most artists they'll have one or two or three areas and then the interesting thing is always when those cross over um so i think that was all really fascinating well in terms of areas of investigation so you you touched on it already of talking about standardization and that's that's clearly an aspect that's um important to you and an aspect that's important in house recasts that you've you've used it as a test bed for this i'm interested to know why that's why you think that's important what's the what's the good thing about standardization and and why should it be explored further um i i mean i suppose um computer fabrication i mean there's an interesting sort of dichotomy between 
standardization and being able to you know make bespoke things and I, I sort of think in the ideal world you know you can do a bit of both and it, i think i don't think it's necessary standardization per se mm-hmm. i mean we did this sort of garden studio that was um that was designed you know to be flat packed you know that that it's it's um it's it comes as a sort of flat pack and and it um you know, and I, and I think these things are kind of experiments as well. So it's, you know, they're not, I sort of see the, some of these projects as a sort of part of a journey that they're not like finished products, let's say. It, it would be great if they would be. And part of that journey has also been realization of how difficult it is to actually make a product, which is like a proper polished um, thing. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I sort of think that, I think the accessibility side of it, I, I like the fact that you can, you know, that it, I, I think there's two elements here, which is that getting highly skilled people is quite expensive and there's not really enough of them around, say, great metal workers or great carpenters. And I never really want to put people like that out of work. And, and I don't think our projects are so small. I don't think it's made a dent in any, any kind of economy. <laughs> so I don't think it's arrogant to say that, but like on our, say just within the sort of microcosm of, of what we're doing. But I think um, it, we, you know, in the studios, we, one of the things we did in the Barbican, we worked with a fantastic joinery firm and it definitely lightens our load. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's incredible. They can do drawings and we still put a lot of effort into it, but it's, it's, and and doing the projects where we actually get involved in like actually doing the CNC prep work, I mean, you realize that that's, that's a lot. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to make ends meet and we're definitely, you know, even going forwards, we're like, oh, we actually need to work out how we, how do we charge for that? You know, how do you even estimate how much time that takes? Cause that's almost mm-hmm. a different kind of field. Um, so yeah, it's quite, I, d- I think it's, I, I don't think I have necessarily a very, um, I don't think it's got to a point where I have a very like, this is the answer to why we should use, you know, I guess the question is like, what's the end goal? Well, the end goal is like to make great bits of architecture um, that people can afford. And I think there's lots of ways of doing that. And and partly standardizing is one of them. Um, and yeah, it would be great. I mean, the funny thing is our garden office, we, it's quite complicated and got a lot of, there's a, it, that project was actually from my brother. So, um, and there's been a few, you know, I'll be sort of, you know, very open about it. There's, there's a few, you know, there's some sort of teething issues with it, relatively minor, but I, mm-hmm. we, you know, we've got like 50 or 60 inquiries for that. Half of them say it's too expensive because they just think it should be cost of a garden shed. And there's never expectation that it's going to be like, it's meant to be a small building, not a shed. Mm-hmm. And the other half that, you know, they're also in different parts of the world. And so we've actually just sort of put it on hold because we kind of need more time and we've been very busy. It, there's quite a lot of work taking it to the next stage, which is kind of what we want to do for us is actually to like really go back and redesign it ideally from scratch. <laughs> you know, so this is people uh, that, that want to buy the garden studio. The one that you designed, they want to buy replicas of that, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Them, yeah. And, and, and we've sort of, we've basically just been trying to hold back on it because we're just mm-hmm. sort of trying to buy ourselves some time to actually go and, and, and sort of make some changes and um uh, you know and you know and so it's 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 really tricky like you know suddenly have we designed a product that people want but we don't really think it's kind of market ready yet yeah. <laughs> and and so that's like suddenly you're into like oh that's production there because also the liabilities if we do 10 of them 
and they all have the same leak in the corner, which we fixed, yeah. but there, is, there was a leak in one corner. <laughs> but it was also like, what does that leak do? Is that leak causing some problems? So it's like two, three years since we did it, and it seems to be more or less okay. But, you know, it's, it was quite experimental, and there's just a whole mm. load of things. You know, the doors the, the doors were really big. We're going to make the doors a bit smaller. Actually, we'd like to make it on ground screws rather than concrete, so it's more sustainable. Um, you know, you suddenly you have a wish list for the project, which is like, oh, we want to do all these things. And, and and on top of that, we're like, well, actually, you know, yeah, like in, even in terms of like how much money you make from it, it's like we don't really making much from it. And how do we even just like make that? It, you know, we had one person and we were like, well, we need to do quite a lot of redesign work. And if we put that into mm-hmm. it as well, it makes it even more expensive. Um, so we actually sort of got some distance down the route. And then for various reasons, they decided to stop. So it's kind of, you know, this, that's a real, that's, a, that's that's an interesting challenge. And it just shows how standardization, you know, the, there's just a lot of things. And even the sort of marketing of it, it's like, well, the probably best thing we've set up like a mini website. I mean, mm-hmm. as, I mean, you're probably the same. You have like long to-do lists and some of them are like, <laughs> call the engineer to do this problem tomorrow or now. Or, you know, the other is like, find a joinery firm to work with. Oh, you know, to 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 you know, because that was done without any joinery firm. We just did it straight off. But we were like, who would right. be the natural partner? Well, who would be a partner to kind of take that forward with? And actually, it'd be yeah. quite interesting to have somebody where you could actually build one in a workshop and then sort of go through all the junctions and actually go through it in a more rigorous way and say, mm-hmm. is this the right way of doing it? Um, and maybe that's where it's sort of an element of if you want, if you make a product, you kind of it makes you into a bit of a purist. So you're like, no, it has to be really. If, it's, mm-hmm. if we're going to do like this many, you've got to do it a different way. So there's definitely that's thrown up a sort of confusion of like, oh, it's been quite successful, but how how do you deal with that as an architect's practice? Are you really geared mm-hmm. up to do it? So I'm really keen to do it, but it's like definitely when we've been like, like a lot of people, the second half of the pandemic has been quite busy for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, it's sort of taken a slight backseat for the time being. But it's also nice to have these projects which you are which aren't like, you know, needs to be done yesterday. And, yeah. um, and so, yeah, that's, um, yeah, anyway, so that's, that was a long answer to your standardization question. But it's, but this as- it's that aspect of production that's really interesting. If you're clearly re- very engaged with it and it's important to you. And, um, and that's what I like about House Recast. So it's, it's very bespoke as a project, very unique, very of its place, clearly very much for these clients that, that live in this property. But also you're exploring and testing, although you don't have the answers, you're testing questions that are much bigger questions and actually very difficult questions, I think. So, you know, the house extension market in general is quite a wasteful process. It's quite a it's quite a repeatable process, but it never is repeatable. It's always unique. It's always a lot of steelwork and a lot of glass and a lot of foundations. And no one has a kind of very easy solution for that. But you are trying some things here that, uh, and I'm really interested to sort of find out what you kind of maybe, how you applied those on this project and um, what you what you learned from them and what maybe other people can learn as well. Um, but maybe if we take a, just a step back then on House Recast and maybe if we just start with a sort of classic starting point of um, just who are the people, who's where's this house and who are these people why did they come to you um and, and what was the problem that or what did they what did they need from you um there are a couple uh alan and russell um they are retired and 
they came, they approached the studio through Omar Ghazal, who was working for me at the time. And he's actually recently set up on his own. He's a very talented uh, young architect. And he he um, was, we've been working together for a couple of years. So it, it was a contact of his. And I think they liked the idea of commissioning a young practice to do something interesting. It starts off them saying they've been in the house for 40 years. Um, and they they'd done bits of DIY across the house. And I think they had sort of got to a point where I think they realized that they they wanted to kind of do something a bit more. And there was bits of the house that they never really dealt with, which was sort of, it was an end of terrace and quite unusual for London house. It's a bit wider. It's quite a lot wider than the other houses on the street and mm -hmm. the normal London townhouse um, on a wedge shaped site. And um, they, and so there was the back of the house was a very unusual. Uh, and there was a sort of back corner where the kitchen was. And it was, it was, I mean, even compared to most Victorian houses, particularly badly lit, dark, lots of different levels. Mm -hmm. So there's one kind of, let's say, dark corner of the house, which is where I think probably like a lot of architects, you sort of start getting excited <laughs> and go, <laughs> oh, there's a possibility to do something transformative here, you know, again. And I, I think it's, I, you know, coming back to architecture, I have no, we were talking about sort of concepts, you know, I think I, I love going into a house where it's clearly got something which just doesn't work well mm. and being able to say we can do something here that just and, and victorian houses that's the joy of them they all tend to have quite strange relationships with their back gardens or let's mm. say um working relationships rather than something which is more enjoyable and so it is a sort of constant source you know almost anything you do will make an improvement um but yeah they were so they were, and they were pretty open from the beginning. They, I think they, they, they wanted us to do something great, you know, something really, you know, interesting. They wanted to commission a small piece of architecture and we wanted to build a small piece of architecture. And I think that the, they wanted, the, there was always the opportunity of doing something on two stories and being mm -hmm. a sort of emerging practice. You know, that's exciting because it's almost a small building. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think planning seemed reasonably, you know, it wasn't in a conservation area. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, and I think then I built this house in York and I think within the practice, there's sort of interest in two different, you know, with more lightweight timber frame buildings and heavier, more sort of massive masonry construction. And mm -hmm. that both of those have a relevant place and coming, I suppose it sort of comes back to, um, my time working with all of the sort of idea of a sensory approach and that deep, you know, that you, even somebody doesn't know about architecture, you go into a room. I have a sort of strong feeling that people could probably tell what that room's built from, even though they know nothing about, you know, people are generally quite naive about, uh, you know, about some of the kind of um, details of architecture, uh, you know, say compared to cars, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, people will sort of happily say they don't know anything about buildings but I think people probably have a reasonably good sense if the floor is concrete or timber just because of the acoustics, resonation, all these things. So I think, uh, yeah, we, so I think the idea of the really sort of masonry construction, something that you really feel you're in a very solid environment, I think is, um, I mean, it's, it, there's an interesting challenge as we sort of, everyone's rightly really much more focused on sustainability issues. But there is a question, does that mean we can't build solid anymore? And I think there are things we should be tackling. I mean, yes, if you say we're in a crisis, we don't have that luxury. But 
you think about people's mental health and well-being it's like well if people really like you know why do people love victorian houses is something that i often have dwelt on <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's it's like well they they know them they read them that you know even if you don't know much about architecture you know that the floors are timber and the walls are brick and you can understand that and like actually having brick walls around you is it's it's quite a nice it's quite a nice thing it's like you know mm -hmm. the, the sense of solidity you know people buy a house because they want security and enclosure and privacy and and some and something you know if you're out in the countryside in a in a sort of raised timber frame pavilion that that can be beautiful um or in the in, in a sort of garden but if, if you're in an urban environment maybe you do want something that feels a bit more solid um do you, do you think people get that sense everywhere the sense of understanding the materials around them like if they're if they're in a victorian terrace they're surrounded by brick yeah timber stilts type building yes but what about a kind of tower block plasterboard and plasticky windows do you think that's the are you, are you talking about kind of well-designed spaces that you think people get that sense or do you think people you, you generally feel no, that I, I, I think no i think that's the problem with modern construction is people don't have that sense and i think they, mm. they find it more difficult to identify with and i think there is a challenge that we sort of come back to a degree of fakery that mm. uh, you know mo most modern housing projects are like look so I think that the housing sector, you know, if you buy a flat, try and persuade your average British person to buy a flat in the city, you know, it's almost sort of helps that it looks like a really solid brick edifice. Um, it's just the fact that increasingly the brick is only a few millimetres thick and there's mm. 300 mil of styrofoam. And again, there's good reasons for that. But we're sort of back to where the modern movement started, which was about faking it. <laughs> you know, we're, our buildings are all composite. You know, they're quite elaborate bakeries and even and it comes back to concrete you know we were the starting point of this project is we want to do it solid but we'd quite like to do it so that the what you see is what you get you know which is a sort of well it sounds like a kind of catchphrase but like it's just that basically that you what you know that the, the concrete is is actually the structure which mm. is really challenging and i don't know necessarily if we do it again like that but it was as a sort of exercise it was a really i think it was a valid one and it was like well that's how they built in victorian times i mean obviously there's the primarily thermal issues but i think in a way i think our, i mean and again going back to the art world what was interesting well doing lots of pavilions and working at, actually at some point with a lot of other architects on them and everyone going oh this is the best thing to do and in my mind was always like well how do you convert this quite sort of expressive architecture of pavilions which again is another area a lot of architects start with and i i found i was always almost most concerned with how you make this into a building. How could this be a small building? Which, I mean, again, comes back to the garden studio. Of, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, can we, we, we did this art project in Folkestone, which was a timber frame construction called the clearing. And it was part of for the Folkestone Triennial and it was inside. And, and it, and it was sort of, that, that was the sort of, it, it, the, the thing took some days to put together and it was like one and a half thousand pieces of timber. Um, and it was really exciting to build and it was complicated. And, but again, I was like, how do we make a building out of this? <laughs> how do we take this and scale it up? And that is a massive challenge. And, and that's sort of, and I think, it, you know, that's something that we're all grappling with in architecture is how to go from doing something maybe more ethereal, something which is, you know, um, you know, so it might be like a pop-up in the park to making, you know, and, and I think there can be a lot lost in that process. And I think practices like your practice and our practice, that's maybe where we're most relevant is trying to make that. If we all just jump really quickly into doing quite large housing projects, which are like built in a very 
you know, where the developer, the, the contractor will come along and say, more or less tell you how it should be done. Mm -hmm. We're just really dressing the facades and doing some internal planning. And not to say that that's the way a lot, some architects are practicing, but like, I think there's, a, I, I, the point is that I think there's a sort of something in between, which is trying to explore that transition from mm -hmm. more idealistic small projects, which don't really have to conform to very much at all of anything like doing an curating an exhibition in the gallery to building and and it's a really like and it, I, I mean you probably aware you know i'm sure you guys go through this as well it's like you know it's 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 a huge you know sort of thing it's like how do you build and small buildings are sort of there are you know if you're if you're an emerging practice they're your prototypes for bigger buildings and mm. um and so that's i think that's a really really interesting challenge and it's like and i think it's why there's an interest in like hemp construction because it's like, well, it's mm. just one solid wall thickness. You don't, you know, can, is that possible in this day and age? Is that just a dream that's naive to say yeah. you actually don't need 25 layers because that's the bit where a lot is lost. Yeah. Well, we've had Cork House on the, on the podcast, one of the very early episodes, another, another really good example of just really simple construction and natural materials and almost like building blocks, like a toy. Yeah. Simple. It's so kind on of the, this, the dream. So with, with House Recast then, what's, you know, we talked about the importance of building a concept and maybe that being a kind of slightly weaker element in architecture, maybe compared to the art world. Um, I'm going to test you here then on this project. What's, <laughs> what concept did you build here and how, you know, what was the big idea? Um, well, again, I think it was probably a combination of several ideas. I think the starting point was like, can we do something which, you know, you can really read the mass of the building we're going to we want to make something which felt like a masonry extension to a house um, why, why is that uh which i think it's just because like i say the idea of enjoying the solidity of something is a very mm -hmm. primal um i wouldn't say need because i think you know as i mentioned it's you can also make wonderful timber structures i, I just think in a way, it's part of the repertoire of architects, and I think it's it's it, it, we, in my mind they're both valid, and I think they both mm. need to be explored. Um, you know, obviously it's challenging small practice to try. You know, it, it's quite easy. I mean, one of the comments from the judges are most of the stuff you do is quite lightweight and filigree, and it's like, well, actually, the first project we did was a load bearing vault <laughs> for a project we did in New York. Yeah um which was an amazing thing you know it's just it's such a simple thing and it was absolutely fantastic and it was a bit like well we've done this really nice brick low brain thing not to say we've done brick but it was just like it, it just seemed interesting with the, with the kind of experience we had in the practice um to, to sort of say actually concrete would lend itself quite well to some of the skills we have in terms of fabrication and quite quickly i think we came to the idea of off-site fabrication that might enable us to do things I had an, uh, you know, through my time in Olafur, an interest in patterns, pattern making. So it was a bit like, can I think quite right at the kind of concept level, we were like, let's do something which is a sort of essay in concrete, so we can get this sort of really solid, massive enclosure, something that has a real sense of solidity, which would be really enjoyable, but will be not two skins of concrete. And the sort of frustration, and I've done a couple of like research projects where we're looking at, you know, the idea of casting. You know, there's also, an, you look at buildings around the city, like architects love working with concrete. And then, you you know, you build your concrete frame and then you cover it up because that's mm. what you have to do. And then you put more concrete on the outside. Um, and so, yeah, we I think it was the idea of like, can we make it that it's just 
concrete frame, which is a beautiful concrete frame. And I think, let's say really quickly, we were, we were at the point where we were thinking about coloured, as a sort of essay in concrete that would maybe be coloured concrete, but also um, patterned concrete and structural. It was like, okay, that's quite a lot. And I think conceptually then, I think on the inside, um, I think we, we wanted to create um, a great, sort of, in terms of the space, the double height space, whether that's, you say that's a concept or not, but I think in terms of connections with the existing house, I think Victorian houses tend to be quite cellular and maybe something more elaborate than a kind of one big living space on the back, kind of open plan box, but something which had a, maybe a more sort of, um, let's say, um, nuanced connection with the old house. So the actual double height space connects with the staircase off the side of it to the house. So there's actually all sorts of interesting diagonal views as you come down the stairs from the house onto the kind of mezzanine that we created into the main space. And I think, um, and then we sort of cut lots of small holes in the walls so you could open hatches and get views through, um, which kind of again ties with a slightly more sort of playful way of building that we, you know, that there would be all these nice connections, whether it's a couple or a family living in a house that is actually fun to use. I think that's probably something that working with John Tucky was something we talked about a lot. We were designing a house for his family and, you know, the idea that those kids could get onto the counter and then run across the kitchen counter, you know, there's sort of almost a sort of steps up to the kitchen counter mm. and there was, you know, they could go along right around the corridor across the roof and back through the window into the bedroom. And then there are all these interesting routes around yeah. the house. And I, I, I really, really love that. So the idea of, you know, a, a more elaborate space that's really fun to use every day and has lots of interesting connections. And, um, and then, and then there was on, then there was a sort of, I guess a third idea, which was about sort of, Part of it is a is a fairly typical sort of framing views approach, um, which I still really love, but also trying to kind of quite clearly segregate, you know, light from above. And I think when you build an extension to a house, that's a sort of classic issue is that you're trying to bring light deep into the house because you're extending it and you don't want it to be less light. Um, and then also, you know, I think skies in England, are, you know, not Southern Europe, but well, even if you were, you'd probably have a solar gain issue. But basically, um, you know, the sky's quite grey. Like, I mean, today, where we're doing this podcast, I'm looking out the window and it's pretty threatening skies and you don't necessarily always want to feel like you're in a glass box. And that comes back to a sense of enclosure and this sort of more mm. sensory approach that I personally, and I think that's sort of fed into the projects we've done. I think a sense of enclosure is very important. And I think the kind of modern ideal of this sort of seamless space, you know, if you go somewhere like Mexico City, you see these incredible modern buildings. They still have single glazing because the climate only changes by like five degrees through the mm. year. And it's just modernism as it was always intended. And it's just spectacular and it's so wonderful. But that's tough in Northern Europe. And actually, and I think if you look at, say, for example, the house on Dome even proved this sort of maybe enjoying the separation between inside and outside is something that's been mm. rediscovered in a way that you can still, and then maybe a more elaborate way of getting to your garden, but not necessarily always just having this kind of seamless glass, um, you know, terrace and is, is the same as the floor inside. And I think, so in this, in this context, that was um, realized through these kind of roof lights, which were designed to filter the light, give you a sense of enclosure and, um, and sort of not distract you from the views out to the garden, which hopefully throughout the year is still more interesting than maybe looking at a bit of glass above you, which, yeah. 
might you know which um and, and also then filtering the light from above so that was another kind of i suppose key idea and they've got two of these roof lights which one in the bathroom and one in the over the over part of the kitchen working with the concrete, the solidity, working with the patterns. Um, we've got this kind of connection, interconnection of spaces and, and cross views, and then this top light kind of being filtered through the house. There's so much going on. I just wanted to maybe just talk through just the layout. So we've got a bit of geography of the house. So it's an end of terrace, um, and it gets wider at the back than it is at the front. So the, the entrance is at the front, and there's one room, like a classic Victorian bay window living room or I think it's dining room now but then at the back there's a living space and there's a kitchen space that both open onto the garden and that a triangular wedge that is the kind of entrance hall at the front and the stairs going up now upstairs it's just two bedrooms isn't it so it's it's fairly sort of generous in terms of size of the house to, to bedroom space and then you've created this there's a bathroom up there really beautiful bathroom that we definitely have to talk about later um, but where you've created this double height opening above the kitchen that's a kind of balcony study area that that overlooks um so a two two floor house is that correct or is there a, there's a there's a, a, there's a secret there's level up there isn't there, there yeah. there's a secret extra level so there's a, a loft conversion the client did some years ago which we didn't touch i mean yeah classic you know we, we started and we were really meant to be doing the extension and then we did renovation of the ground floor rooms and we ended up doing most of the first floor as well so it's, yeah that you know which which is great because it gives us the opportunity it's, it's really nice to be able to hand it back to the clients and actually we've really you know that that the, we've sort of given the house a quite a good refresh let's say after they've been in how did before. that happen then did it did the project get away with itself a bit and was it did you present some ideas that then got them excited and made it a bigger project well the rest of the house i mean i think the rest of the house was it's, it's quite light touch. So it wasn't so much mm-hmm. that I, I think the main area of the house, I think it was, it, it, I guess it's one of those classic things that the expenditure at some point and the involvement of the project um, does sort of lend itself that you might as well do more. And that's kind mm-hmm. of, I think that happens a lot in architectural projects and, you know, we, uh, we don't necessarily encourage it, but it's also like we don't discourage it. You know, mm-hmm. when you're doing it, you're like, well, actually it's it's you know sometimes those things can be a headache because there's a lot of it's not necessarily that easy to get these victorian houses up to a good standard you know stripping down all the windows then it doesn't it's not necessarily the most labor intensive part of the project um although it can throw out lots of things when they you find bits of rot here and there and issues mm. so i think it is something that happens quite it's not if it doesn't happen infrequently um but i think that this did the scope increase that much Probably a little bit, but um, I think it was more, it was just because of the strong interconnection, it was quite nice that you weren't looking to a part yeah. of the house that wasn't in a in a worse state of repair, let's say, or sort of um, looking, you know, less refreshed. Um, so for us, it was it was obviously quite really nice that the client decided to kind of push it a bit further and, um, and, um, and, and sort of just renovate the areas, all of the areas that connected onto the extension. Mm-hmm as it became the sort of central part point. And I think they were very excited. Um, I mean, they were incredible really throughout the whole thing. And um, 
also the sort of delays that occurred during the, the last year with lockdown. Um, and um, so, there, you know, that did create a, a sort of extended completion of the project. And, um, and they, they, but they, you know, they've always been very excited. And also just saying, you know, we, we, we you're the architects, we know that you're, you, that you have a concern, you have a, you know, they were always sort of, you know, seemed, they were, it was very nice that they seemed that they basically said, you've got our best interests mm-hmm. and, you know, you can do the worrying and uh, which which was you know it's also like you take that responsibility quite seriously like okay, yeah we pressure are worrying. i know it's like uh but it, but it's also nice because it's like well um you know trying to push the say the final stage of these projects is never easy especially when there's a global pandemic so um it yeah. was we had a we, we hopefully i think we still got a really good relationship and they they like now that they're, they're in living in it and they love it um and so that's really nice. So it's, it's been a generally a really positive relationship. And um, yeah. And the, uh, on the project, like in terms of new construction, it's actually quite small, isn't it? There's a one half maybe of the kitchen is actually an extension, an infill, and then the room above the the bathroom is new. That's the addition to the project. Yeah. You've done then a lot of carving out and changing. Um, but in terms of the actual addition, is that all concrete? Is that the the structure? And yes, that's all concrete. Uh, I think there's two small flank walls which are um, were concrete block and are rendered, um, which are sort of like nib walls. Um, and you know, obviously, some sort of the, the we, we built two piers, but yeah, it's the, the the actual thing is all concrete. The the walls and the frame are all concrete. So how's that work? So typically here on a very typical extension, this would be. There'd be a steel beam in there, a couple of posts opening up the back of the house, a floor slab, a brick wall, a timber roof, that kind of thing. What's what's different here, and um, how have you done it? So there's basically a um, there's four concrete beams. Um, well, not four. There's three concrete beams and two columns, and the columns stack on top of each other. Um, so you on the back of the house, there's a sort of cruciform arrangement of um, of uh, these this uh, a beam with a pattern on it, and these two columns which have a pattern on them as well. Uh, and then from the the point at which they interconnect at the centre of this cruciform shape, there's a there's a beam that goes back, and it's picked up by a beam that runs across from side to side within the space. So it sort of forms like a kind of cube, traces almost a kind of cube, which the is basically what it's like a cradle for the bathroom. Um, and that was the sort of starting. I guess one of the sort of starting points in terms of the the actual layout. Um, uh, so, so what we see here when we look at the house, there's these green columns and beams. They've got the pattern on. They are solid concrete, load-bearing. and they've been and they've been made off sites. Yeah, and so these have been brought in almost like matchstick building blocks and yeah. connected together. And the, so, was there a moment where this was just a frame of green? columns and beams and everything sort of waiting to be built around it uh yeah there was i mean it, it all happened so because it was built off site mm. i mean one of the one of the only things that we had which was a sort of setback in terms of the project was we we was all designed to be craned in over the house and and it turned out that it was too expensive to do that and that's a frustration with off-site construction and i do think it's a problem that the council basically it it was going to cost an obscene amount of money to close the street. It turns out because yeah. there's a tra- there's a traffic light at the bottom of the street, and it's just it's a small 
residential side road, but it happens to have a traffic light, and therefore they said we had to put up three traffic lights in the neighbourhood and leaflet 300 houses, and it just got more and more complicated. And, um, yeah, so that was a real headache. And it was a real shame because it was it, w- it would have made the, co- the construction much easier. The concrete installer was amazing and just said, don't worry, we can do this. And they, we basically, the concrete panels on the wall, the, the, the sort of salmon-coloured wall panels, we ended up making them in smaller segments so we could bring them in through the window. And they basically built yeah. a platform in the front room at the sill height of the window. And they basically, like, wheeled them through on sort of, casters the panels and then they basically built just a small scaffold frame like a structural scaffold frame in the back so they could hoist them up and into place but it did make the construction more difficult i mean in some ways it made it a bit less we in, we'd sort of allowed for two days to crane everything into place and we discussed that with the concrete manufacturers cornish concrete that could all go together in two days and in the end it took it took about three days and a couple of days because we had to adjust the scaffolding. Um, but it was definitely more tricky, uh, and you know, le- and you know, it, d- it definitely kind of uh, made it made things sort of less elegant in terms of the, mm-hmm. the sort of strategy for what we were doing. That that these things were it was it just it was a much more limited space with which to like bring these things through the house and lift them into place. But it's still that bit went together really quickly. Um, and so these, kind these of pink salmon bits—that's the cladding of the. That's the outward-facing wall of the bathroom block that's kind of sat above, is it? Yeah, and that, that's yeah. actually not cladding. That's like, they're actually structural wall panels. Right, right. So um, yeah. they, they're they actually some of the heaviest elements. They're like 150 mil thick, so they actually kind of brace the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, that was, again, coming back to the idea that everything is structural concrete, and then it was all inst- insulated on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it, that that's also a challenge to kind of, to kind of work out all the thermal bridges and um and and sort of you know if if the if the outside elements are all structural um that does kind of create it's, it's a less usual way of doing things and the inside mm. being structural than wrapping it all in insulation um but you know it's, it's it being not very big i guess the sort of um it was it, you know it wasn't there wasn't tons of detailing in that respect so it was quite i think it was manageable um, but it was uh, it was definitely an interesting way of doing it, and it did go up really quickly. Yeah. Um, and and it was you know so I think um, that was one of our ideas. It's like can we do this? That so can be built in a few days. Um, obviously, there's a lot of forward planning. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. But what I love about it is it's so kind of it's tectonic, it's elemental, it's pieces that all stick together. You can imagine it being like a kid's toy that you kind of put these components together but you're still creating a space that feels solid and carved and the opposite, like a cave, which isn't, it's a solid mass and a space that's been carved out inside. I think that's, that's part of the essence of the beauty of this, this project. I've been sort of doodling it here while you've been talking of figuring out, okay, column, beam, column, hopefully you've got some really good drawing that you can maybe share with me that I can put on the, the website. But um I yeah, actually no, realised we don't, we, we've got something, but I was actually thinking I need to, we need to kind of, just um put a bit of color on it or something but um just put it in the in the pack of information we've got because yeah. um it's actually the missing thing is the actual sort of axonometric of the concrete bits well if you um, need it i've got a crappy doodle here that i've been doing <laughs> yeah, can, we'll that i'll let you have <laughs> um but then the, so the other real kind of strong element in so once we get inside we can see these 
green beams that are forming this new opening in this new space in the kitchen. But then all the walls are this one kind of mottled material. And that's the same where we go up into the bit that's flat roof in the kitchen is the bit where you've got the light coming from above, but it's curved. It's a vaulted vaulted and ribbed, would you say? Like the the kind of arches with gaps yeah. in between where the the light can come through. Is that all one surface material? What and what construction is happening there and what is that surface material? Um so there's two materials. The 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 ribbed um vaults above the kitchen um or one part of the kitchen and in the bathroom they are um uh they're painted timber. Um right. so those those are yeah, that, that's wood, that element. And um, the the walls inside, the rest of the walls, we, we actually used an external lime render. We wanted to use a sort of clay plaster, right. but it was quite expensive. So we just, we used a lime render. And just because we wanted to gain this kind of quite elemental, we thought it was a nice contrast with the concrete. But yeah. it was this, again, it had this sort of um, slightly more... Um, yeah, so it was, I mean, the, the, the party wall of the building with the big chimney breast that goes up through the double height space, obviously that's a masonry wall. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it seemed nice to use something that was um, a little bit maybe more, lent itself to, you know, just saying, well, that's masonry. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, we, we and we used that, and then we kind of created this quite thick wall between the, the front dining room and, and the and the and the main space. Um which sort of partly hides new bathroom with you know, just a squeeze in in the hallway, um, mm-hmm. which is like an accessible bathroom, which is again something which came into the brief a bit later on from the client, but it was quite a nice thing because you know they're a retired couple and they just said it would be nice to have a bathroom on the ground floor, but also one that's yeah. a little bit more usable. Um, so yeah, that was, um, but so we, we ended up using it in some other locations as well, but it sort of tied together a lot of the new. Uh, the sort of the the interventions we made um and i think it's you know it's really nice to use something like lime plaster or render um as a, a nice texture i mean it was quite an interesting thing that happened which is that there's a lot of discussion about the finish and we it turned and so we um yeah we sort of discovered that like different countries have different ways of doing plastering it's quite difficult to unlearn these things so <laughs> contractors were polish and they were like no this is how we do it in poland because <laughs> they sort of saw it's like external render so obviously yeah. if it was just internal plaster you'd probably get something much more like you'd expect in any you know um you expect in any project here you get the sort of smooth pink stuff mm. um yeah so they they kind of rub it so it brings out the texture in it um yeah. they just keep they keep going over it with a trowel until it brings all the it actually brings all the sort of the sort of um grain the granular elements to the front so there was um quite a protracted discussion about um the benefits <laughs> which what we should have it was a little uh yeah. but anyway it was, that was quite interesting i didn't i didn't realize it was quite so different how um, external render is done in different countries mm. in this case it was quite visible because it's on the inside or quite like um had quite a big impact on the space because it was on the inside it's, it's tricky isn't it because i mean we've used lime render before internally for its kind of breathability quality so we've used it on a wall with then cork behind it and allowing a victorian wall to sort of breathe properly and it's great for kind of health benefits internally as well um but the challenge is it's it's just going non-standard isn't it it's not the standard plasterboard and plaster finish that you'd have and it just opens up this sort of cap we ended up having we, we brought in a specialist because the builders had done tests but but also felt actually let's bring in 
the right person to do it and we can kind of learn from them maybe for the next one um, but that can sometimes mean these choices get it's it's so easy at that point isn't it to go let's just make it plasterboard <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things you, then, i mean yeah they're good learning things i mean there's a, yeah we were definitely like it was funny because it's two coats and the undercoat was much smoother and then the top coat they it was much rougher and yeah. I was calling the really, I can't remember the name of the companies, but they're really, really good. That, um, I think they're called Lime Green or something that do the lime render. And they were like, no, no, it shouldn't necessarily be like that. Mm. And then that's why we we're having those conversations. And it was like, and the guys, and we were like, but is it different, the material? And it was like, well, it's pretty much the same. Anyway, it's like, say, so you get into this very quick learning curve of um, what exactly all these components are you're specifying mm. And like why, and then yeah, in the end, it turned out that the guys were like, "I don't know, we're making it like that." <laughs> and mm. after we having quite a lot of discussions of like with the main contractor, like calling all these companies and lots of quite sort of intense phone calls, like, "Why is it coming out like this?" And why is it? Um, so they did they did sort of make it a bit smoother again. So I think, and I think it looks nice. It's get it's nice that it picks up the light, but like you say, yeah. it's quite you're suddenly like, oh, you're just in down suddenly going down a whole wormhole of like um, something that you hadn't quite envisaged. But it, w- it wouldn't have been the same project without it, I don't think. It's such an important quality. This, It just gives it a softness to it, and it just plays so well with the idea of the solidity and, and working with concrete as well. But I also find what I find really mysterious about this project is this blurred line of what's actually going on. And, um, you know, the fact that there are these very clear components, but you have to really discover that. And I imagine that's a quite a nice element of the, of living in the house or visiting the house as well. Um, but if we, one of the real kind of key distinctive features that say the very sort of photographable element is this double height space that you've created. So once we're on the inside of the main building, um, as in not the extension part, there's a room above the kitchen where you've taken out a semicircle, quarter of a circle, what would you call it? Um, a pie of the, of the floor and created this kind of curved balcony that overlooks the kitchen and that's where the study is can you tell me a little bit about um the the sort of reasoning behind that and how you kind of came up with this it's it seems so obvious and so why wouldn't you do it this way but i've not seen i don't think i've seen it before um we actually have two projects one of which we haven't photographed yet which is we were sort of i guess these things it's probably the same in your practice they sort of go in clusters mm. um and uh, it's in Stoke Newton, so it's just down the road from this project, um, where we did something, we've done something similar. Um, that one is less colourful. It's a guy who's an art collector, so we kept the colour palette a little bit more muted. Um, but I think, I suppose there's a sort of, um, yeah, I think, I, I suppose there's sort of, what are the ideas behind that? I think there's a kind of Gordon Matter Clark enjoyment of punching holes in old buildings. <laughs> um, Sorry, what's that reference? Gordon Matter Clark. So um, there's this the, um, American artist who is, um, a, if you look him up, there's beautiful pictures of uh, um, the, before the Pompidou Centre was built. I think they gave him some of the buildings they demolished to make the Pompidou Centre right. and he chopped big circular holes on the side of them. But basically cutting holes and <laughs> uh, the work was basically cutting sort of vaguely, you know, more or less geometric holes in, in old buildings. Yeah. And I, and I sort of think, um, uh, yeah, putting a hole in the floor is, is and putting a hole in the wall is quite fun. If you're an architect, putting a hole in the floor is really fun. It's like, yeah. um, you know, suddenly, and again, come back to this sort of idea that Victorian houses can be quite cellular and 
um, Stone Museum um, as a reference, you know, the idea that I, I, I like the idea that I think the extension of Blackwell House can sort of almost feel like a series of pavilions or a pavilion. Mm. And that the, there's a constant sort of, you're being constantly challenged with, you know, the, the, the space is changing and you need to reorientate yourself. And I guess that comes also back to sort of like sort of sensory idea that, you know, suddenly the, the ceiling height changes above you and then mm. there's light coming from the side. And in a kind of elemental way that there are these significant shifts as you move through the house. And I guess it's a part of this sort of pushback of the glass box on the back where you have a sort of flat ceiling with recessed ceiling lights in it and a glass wall uh, and a wooden floor or something that there's that these spaces are quite articulated and that that is a, is potentially a really nice thing as you go through the house. I mean, based on the fact that if you live there, that you become familiar with this and it becomes a way of reading the space. I think to me, the best buildings, they are pleasantly surprising when you use them for the first time mm -hmm. and then have a nice familiarity if you start using them more often that these are ways of you know you know in this house you come into the entrance hall you go through an arch into the into the dining room and you go through a second arch down some steps into the into the kind of kitchen there's a sort of small living area next to the kitchen or sort of sitting area then there's a double height space and you move into the kitchen and there's a vaulted roof. I mean, it's quite a lot for the size yeah. of the space, but it's also like, why, well, why not? It's like, it's, you know, and, and, and as I say, if it opens up, if it kind of creates all these interesting views and it means that you can lean over the balcony and call at dinner's ready, um, you know, that's a nice thing. And you're not, so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think um, part of my upbringing was living in the sort of outer, so, you know, sort of satellite town around London and, and it's, you know, people building bigger and bigger extensions on houses without necessarily dealing with the sort of central spaces. And you mm -hmm. just end up with a, you know, say a fifties house or even Victorian house that's got, you know, a certain size staircase and a certain size entrance hall. And it's, you know, it used to have three or four or five bedrooms and now it's got 10. <laughs> people just keep extending more and more bedrooms, more and more bedrooms. And actually it's like, well, you've got a reasonable size house in this house. Um, has um yeah because there's also sort of half level above this double height space yeah um so you know there's potentially uh you know six bedrooms in this house <laughs> they don't get yeah. used to six bedrooms there's a sort of um s second study um but it's it's you know so i think it's actually like well what do you you actually then want to you, to get a nice balance you actually want to have more you know you want you want to have um a more interesting entrance sequence and maybe more spaciousness in the house itself and also it helps light penetrate into the house that yeah. double height space it works really well to bring light in from the south side into um the, the circulation space which is facing north so mm -hmm. you know there's there's lots of reasons and again it comes back to sort of slightly more maybe articulated or elaborate approach to space making that i think is quite interesting um mm -hmm. and i think yeah so so that's in and i think yeah, I, I, I mean, we, I think we touched on it. We're having in our chat before we started about it's, it makes it quite difficult to photograph. These spaces are quite, yeah, they're not they're not huge, so um, it's always uh, interesting when you when you're going around with somebody with a camera because you're like, well, there are actually really nice spaces to walk around, but actually suddenly stick with the camera like <laughs> without doing photograph, yeah, without lying trying to avoid floor. an estate agent photograph of the massive wide angle lens. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, but because they're sort of. I don't say they're designed to be experienced like other spaces aren't designed to experience, but they are, yeah. they are like, you know, that 
the, the sort of things are happening in lots of different axes from just the horizontal yeah. plane. Um, well, then off that balcony, so off the mezzanine level, um, is where you then access the bathroom that is in the new construction and it sits above the kitchen. Um, and what an amazing space to then discover in terms of the discovery of going through the house. Of It's a rectangular room. You've kept it quite simple in terms of layout, but it's got, an, again, an arch ceiling like the kitchen and it's ribbed, so there's this light filtering through um, and the green concrete appears again. Could you just tell me just a little bit about um, what you've done in this space? Um, so I think when I was working with Omar, he was very keen. He He, he was very excited about I think we had a very interesting conversation about um, Middle Eastern architecture and its influence in in British architecture, and particularly the sort of in the Victorian period when I think there was um, at least in, in certain for certain architects there was a sort of interest in um, in um, you know architecture from other places other than say Europe mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and so it sort of fed, I think this fed into um, um, a reference, which I've, I've forgotten now, but um, there's an artist house in, in um, West London uh, in, in Holland Park, um, which which is really beautiful. And it has sort of influences, a Victorian house. Um, and it's sort of almost like a mosque-like interior. Um, and I think, we're designing this with with Omar. We're both interested in pattern and and the sort of again richer a, a richness. And we just thought it was a really interesting project to push color pattern, but also and then and then the sort of final end of this route around the house is this bathroom, which is like mm. a sort of hammam like space and um, a sort of wet room and mm. has a sort of bath which is like built into the walls. Um, it's a sort of big tub um and then and then a sort of pedestal like um uh, wash basin which is a bit like in you see in a hammam um mm-hmm. and uh so yeah and and then again in you know i remember um from when i was studying architecture um going to happen happening to end up in northern cyprus in a medieval church that had been converted into a hammam with um and it had a dome put on the back of it um with little bits of colored glass in the ceiling and this amazing light coming in. I mean, the, the space was very, very run down and you had to go through all these tunnels to get to it. It was almost a frightening experience, but yeah. <laughs> this kind of amazing light coming through the steam. So I think the idea of this kind of diffuse top light coming in was again, it sort of seemed quite apt. So, um, yeah, we just, and it was just, you know, it was a nice opportunity to do something quite, again, quite playful and different. Um, so it was really mm. fun. The brass tube that's um, sticking out of the ceiling is that the is that the shower head? That's the shower, yes. So the shower is basically the, the it is a wet room. The shower is yep. in the middle of the ceiling, and yeah, just like a home you just yeah, very experiential. Yeah, it's um, basically just really sort of quite primitive. There's a, the, the dials are just to your right hand side on the wall, and then this thing yeah um, pumps water out of the ceiling. So what what feedback have you had from um, Alan and Russell um, since they've moved in? What have they told you about living in the house? I think um, they I think they really like the the, the light in the space. Um, I think Alan was saying when we were taking the photographs, he was saying how much he just enjoyed 
the number of different places they find to sit in the house and just enjoy um, the way the light comes in. It's I think with these louvered ceilings, what's great is on a on a kind of overcast day, of which we have quite a lot in this country, you get this quite soft light, and then suddenly the sun will come out. And it's interesting when you're taking photographs, you often notice how changeable the weather is. That the day you will definitely mm. not have any sun today, and then suddenly you get this incredible burst of light coming through the clouds. And suddenly you'll get quite sharp shadows coming through and even from into the double height space the way the light will suddenly change and i think you know i think a lot of architects quite rightly talk about light in the space and we we're talking about sort of sensory approach i guess that sort of tactile how it feels to touch the space how it feels how the sort of aural side of it i don't think that many people talk about how the spaces smell maybe that's an interesting area mm. but obviously in terms of there's the sort of aesthetics, but maybe the thing that really interacts with you the most in terms of how space feels changeable is obviously light and how it moves around the space. And, you know, I say like a lot of architects, I love the idea that this thing is, it's a little camera obscure. It's a box, which is basically reflecting the outside world into it. So I think the changing lights, um, even through there's a sort of little lattice in the bathroom and how, mm because it's south facing how in the morning the lights on one side of the room and the afternoons on the other, and it creates this pattern and the pattern, you know, migrates around the room. Um, it's really, that's, that's really kind of quite joyful. And I think they seem to, they, they definitely seem to something that they have repeated a number of times, how, how nice that is. And as a space, as a sort of, you know, it doesn't, it's actually quite calming, calming that sort of thing when you, see this kind of movement around the room mm -hmm. um so i think that's that seems to be one of their main reflections um which which is great because it's you know it's it's something which um we were excited about when we were designing it and you see that mm -hmm. kind of really working and how how interesting how interesting the light is in the space Okay, Ben, I'm, I'm now going to ask you um, the three questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, and the first one starts with, uh, it's it's about your home. And I understand that you live in a Dennis Lasden property, is that correct? So concrete, um, there's, a, there's a relationship with, with what we've been talking about in this interview and the design. But the question here is, what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? <laughs> um probably lack of space it's probably the same as uh it's probably the same as a lot of people in london um you know uh yeah we were lucky enough to do, sort of be able to renovate the flat a couple of years ago and so in terms of the you know it it's 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 nice it's you know it's the first time i've had these chance to do that to live in a space that i've semi-designed it's a being in a brutalist block which is listed there's not so much you can do mm -hmm. um yeah, I think I think um, lack of space and um, uh, probably the sort of um, the I mean, you know, being in a '60s building, obviously, the some of the kind of environmental things are, can be a challenge. Um, luckily, in summertime, it, it has windows on both sides that helps. Uh, to, it, it doesn't doesn't seem to get too hot. It can get cold mm -hmm. in winter. We we did actually quite a lot of work to kind of improve the thermal performance, but. Um, yeah, being that's something which I guess gives you a sense of it's definitely made me think more about think carefully about what you build because people for generations are going to be living with this. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's definitely a sort of degree of responsibility as architects we have um, in terms of like 
you know, is this going to be, what, what will be the issues coming in the next generation? And obviously now yeah. there's a lot of things about fire. Um, so I think they're like, and luckily not in our building, but you know, if for other people. So I think they're definitely when you, when it comes to building particularly kind of mass housing, um, that's just a sort of, you know, incredible responsibility. Mm. And then if you could pick one house that you visited, um, that's really inspired you, what would you pick and why? Uh, almost definitely been the same museum. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, anyone who, any architects who live in London, I presume are, are pretty familiar and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be the first architect to reference it. I think, um, you know, the, the sequence of spaces is, is, I think is second to none. And it's, it's just, um, the, the, the sort of experiment, how much it felt like a sort of a place for experimenting for Sohn mm. himself and that each room seems to have a different, you know, things that he was trying out and also response to the sort of uses and even the fact that those, you know, the space that's probably the most known the sort of double height space, the sarcophagus in it kind of connects with the sort of studio space, you know, that was, you know, mm-hmm. that is almost a sort of um, part of his own studio that this was, you know, a space to inspire him. I'm not sure if it's the sort of space most architects would necessarily want to work in these days, but obviously, um, but I think, you know, as, a, as an architect, even that the fact that your house would extend into a kind of a, a, a really fantastic workspace is also a nice mm-hmm. idea. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, the fact they've opened up more of the spaces in on the, in the top of the building is very exciting. And you suddenly mm-hmm. see there's even more there than used to be when you were visiting 10 years ago. So it's, it's sort of, um, I think it's, and even just, you know, the drawings of it are incredible mm-hmm. sections. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't know, it's just one of those buildings you just, there's a, there's so much to it. It's nice to be able to go back to it again and again and just look at different things. Yeah. And for anyone listening that hasn't been free to visit, isn't it? Central London, John Soane's Museum. Um, I think it's free. Um, it's, and then if you, it, is. it is, yeah. And then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? Um, well, difficult one. Um, I think a uh, contemporary designer, probably somebody like Armin Taha. I think his work is, at the moment, is doing some really interesting work um um you know in terms of one-off houses and also um the housing project he did in stoke newton is also a really lovely project mm-hmm. um and um yeah so i think probably probably i'd say i'm in Taha at the moment i just think he's he, he's really interesting designer in the in the london scene and just yes. doing doing some really kind of exquisite stuff well, Ben, um, thank you very much for, for doing the interview today. Um, I feel like we could have probably another interview to, to carry on talking about this house. There's loads of things that I know I'm going to regret that I didn't ask about. Um, but thank you for giving your time. It was really interesting. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's really enjoyable to come and chat. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Studio Ben Allen and House Recast, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you like projects that are playful and colourful, then you will love the work of Wawawa Architects, my very first guests on the podcast. 
To listen to the episode, visit the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you to you, the listeners, for supporting this podcast over the last year, and I hope you've enjoyed the interviews as much as I have. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thank you again for listening.